very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> Well, on that note, let's just run right into it and see how interesting it can be. (laughs) Welcome to the Tragedy Academy, a show created to bridge societal divides in a judgment-free zone using candor and humor. My name is Jay. How are you doing today, Gary? Doing good. How are you guys doing? Living the dream. Today, we're joined by John Grauman, founder and principal of the Grauman Rosenfeld Group, the agency and featured agent on Netflix, Buying Beverly Hills. What's going on today, John? How much, guys? How are you doing? Living the dream, my man. Living the dream. Good. Love to hear it. Yeah. So quick point of clarification. Uh, Brownman Rosenfeld was a group that I used to run and recently uh, did, announced a large merger with a couple of other big agents here. We are now a group called Bond Collective, which we'll talk about later, but super excited about that. You know, why don't we just go ahead and delineate that real quick so people can understand kind of what sure. it is you do, you know, and go from there. Yeah. So look, in real estate, everyone, each agent is kind of the CEO of their own business. Right. So there's two different licenses you have to have specifically in California. There's a broker's license. There's a salesperson's license. If you're a salesperson, which is to say you're a real estate agent, you have to hang it under a broker, which would be like a Keller Williams, a Cobalt Banker, right? The big sort of brand names that you know in the market. Within that, each agent, again, can kind of operate their own business, build out their own team. So I lead a team. I'm one of the four principals of uh, the largest team at a company called The Agency based here in Beverly Hills. Um, myself, Adam Rosenfeld, James Harris, and David Parnes, if you've ever seen Million Dollar Listing, were the two Brits on Million Dollar Listing for the better part of the last 10 years. And just as recently as uh, this past December, we announced a merger between our two groups um, to essentially form one big superpower that's really going to be a wow, a seriously formidable force. I think uh, we closed just shy of about $1.4 billion in sales last year and should be you know, one of the top teams in the country. That's, wow, that's amazing. astounding. You've sold over 230 million in 2019 when I was looking through, and you have the 10th highest sale at 75 million, which was uh, what in 2019 as well, right? Yeah, at the time, that was the 10th highest sale uh, at the time in 2019. In fairness, there have been some bigger sales that pushed that a little bit further down the rankings, but it's still one I'm super proud of. And yeah, we did a little over 200, 200 million that year. We jumped up to 750 million in 2021. And then again, just shy about 1.4 billion last year. So we've been fortunate enough to continue to see you know, exponential compounded growth. And that's just, you know, honestly, that's just a reflection of, you know, 10 plus, you know, for me going on 20 years of just hard work, blood, sweat, and tears to get to this point. That's amazing. It's one of those jobs where if you don't hustle, you don't eat, you know, you're not going and punching the clock. Like if you're not out there getting it, you're not getting it. Oh, dude, yeah. it's feast or famine. I mean, it's just that simple. You eat what you kill. Yeah. Yeah, so you can and you can have some really dry months that can you know can be really painful, um, and then you know you can have some months where it just seems like an abundance of business coming from everywhere. So it's a cyclical business. You just have to be there, be prepared to kind of ride that wave and understand what that is, and then plan and budget accordingly so that you don't starve in the winter months. That's for the love of the game, there, because if you're willing to put yourself in such a cyclical nature in your you know your income and your survivability. You really got to love what it is that you're doing. Otherwise, you'd probably go crazy during those down months, you know, and, and all the potential problems that could happen from that income not being available. Yeah, for sure. You definitely, it's one of those things that when you first get into it, it's super daunting, right? The idea of like, hold on a second, I don't have, like, I don't have a paycheck coming in every two weeks. There's just nothing to fall back on is really scary at first, but then you kind of just get used to what that is. And then you embrace the positive in it, which is, okay, so I don't have a cushion, right? There's no safety net that's going to catch me if I fall. 
But by the same token, there's no ceiling. If I just shoot out of a rocket ship, right? Mm. I can take this thing wherever I want to go. There's no limitation to where I can take it, how much I can make. There's no glass ceiling. I have to break through. So I love that part of it. And yeah, you got to love what you do. You got to love the thrill of the hunt. And if I'm being honest, it gets pretty addictive. Meaning when it's feast or famine the way it is and that phone's ringing, you kind of get addicted to that phone ringing, right? You get addicted to like any opportunity, any lead you want to pounce on because you know that you don't know when the next one's coming. I could see how that would happen. It's um, it's almost like gambling or having that moment where you get that just that little seed, that little opportunity every time you touch it. Most people don't look at that. like They'll look at the list as 100 calls versus 100 right. opportunities or a hundred seeds right. to plant. Everything is action. Action, action, action. When you were describing earlier, you were saying that you were doing things in the moment. And when you do things in the moment, you're not worried about tomorrow. You're not worried about yesterday, but you're creating in place. You're giving yourself a really, really strong platform to fucking excel from. Yeah, one of the things that I always you know, try to teach to uh, our newer agents is every moment is an opportunity or rather every moment is an interview, right? You just never know when you're being interviewed, but if, you know, real estate's an easy thing to talk to people about. It's a layup, right? It's not like you're trying to sell people life insurance, right? It's an easy conversation, especially in a town like LA where everybody wants to talk about the big ritzy glitzy houses. So you know, when you have that moment, whether it's you know, sitting down for lunch or in an elevator with someone, that person's sizing you up, right? They're trying, they're gauging how much how much you know your shit and whether or not you can hold that conversation and speak intelligently, you know, what's happening in the market, how all the dots are connected. And I've had multiple situations over the course of now, it's been a long career where I've gotten a phone call months, years later from somebody that I met that didn't even realize in that moment, they were interviewing me. They were sizing me up. And when the opportunity came to buy or sell or refer or what have you, I was top of mind from the impression I left in that moment. So I always say every moment is an interview. It should yeah, it's be. all reputation, you know, business like that. If, you know, you don't have a good reputation, nobody's going to call, you know, it's all word of mouth and yeah. recommendations. You got to be on the up and up. Yep. That's it. I, I go back to authenticity a lot, but I feel like yeah. it's, a, it's something that should always be highlighted in these moments because especially in a sales environment or navigating something along this lines, because yep. you have to remember Every character you played as a salesman over and over and over again, if you were not authentic, if you were not yourself in all of those moments, eventually your skills are going to fracture just by the fact that you have been inauthentic for so long. And people smell that shit. People yeah. smell oh, yeah, inauth yeah. inauthenticity. You might get a few people that you can bowl through or figure out how to just kind of take advantage of their ignorance at some sort. But after that, yep. you're going to fail because you're not doing it for, A, the love of the game, and you're doing it inauthentically. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I mean, a lot of agents, you know, have commission breasts where they're out there just like you can see, they're just so desperate to just get that next deal and, you know, collect the commission on it. I always look in an, in an industry where there's 2 million of us, um, over 30,000 agents in LA alone, it's not about doing, you don't necessarily have to be original. You don't have to do something that no one's ever done before. You just have to be authentic. That's it. Yeah. Right. You don't go have to reinvent the wheel. The wheel's been created. Like I always say like R&D, rip off and duplicate, find what someone else has done and model your behavior after it, but then make it authentic to yourself. Put your own spin and, you know, twist and touches on it to make it real to who you are. That's all you have to do. 
to, to not do that is a slap in the face of whoever made you. You're your own seasoning. Yeah. You have to go out there and put yourself into the world and just hope, or not even hope, just trust that you're going to connect with the people that you're supposed to connect with because you're being that kind of person. If you're being authentic, yeah. you're going to draw those, you know, those types of interactions. Yeah, totally. Look, there's there's an ass for every seat, and I'm not the right fit for certain age, you know, certain clients, and vice versa. And there are agents within our space and within our sphere that, like, I don't really understand the kind of clients that are attracted to them, but the clients that are attracted to them are not the same ones that are probably attracted to me because we just operate very differently, and that's fine. That's the whole idea is like find who you are, carve out your lane, and you know, people will. It's the law of attraction. You'll attract like-minded people. I couldn't agree more. Um, couldn't agree more. So I want to kind of take a step back. We've looked at yeah. John Grauman, the realtor, Beverly Hills, on Netflix, but there's someone that came before that. We all have pivotal moments in our life, and you actually had, I've had multiple careers myself, so these stick out to me. And you had a career that was in a vastly different industry, but probably used similar skills. Can you tell us about who you were before you were a realtor? Yeah, no, for sure. Because it, it's, I constantly have to remind myself that I was that person. That like these memories that flash in my mind from time to time weren't just from some movie I watched, but like actually life experiences that I truly lived. It was that long ago. I've been doing real estate now. This is my 20th year. Wow. Um, but before that, um, I mean, I started in the mid 90s as a rave promoter. Which I know, like, you know, look, guys, I, I have a mirror. I see my reflection every day. I know exactly what I look like. Oh, I have to say this. You are the Ken doll of real estate. When I saw you, I was like, <laughs> if there was an action figure for real estate, you would be in the package <laughs> hanging on the wall. <laughs> That's one of the best lines I've heard. That's actually really good. Yeah, look, I have a very polished, put together look. That part of my identity is like everybody that knows me knows that I just come very prepared, very polished, because that's just me. I prep. I, I don't really do a lot that's off the cuff. I just, my one of my superpowers is in my preparation so that I'm prepared for each mm. moment so that I don't miss it when it passes me by. That said, um, yes, long, long time ago, I'm going back now, 25 plus years ago, I started as a rave promoter. Um, and the way I started in that was you know, I, I grew up in a town called Manhattan Beach, which for those of you that don't know, is just kind of on the outskirts of LA, beautiful little beachside community. But, you know, back then, very quaint, little kind of modest beach town um, and very fortunate and privileged to grow up there. But high school wasn't the right fit for me. It just, for a variety of reasons, um, you know, I had had a very close inner circle of friends going up through elementary school and middle school that I just kind of found myself on the outside of come high school. My sister was a couple of years older, ended up hanging out with some of the older classmen. As a result, I kind of just found myself distancing myself from my, my friends. And, you know, high school can be brutal. Mm. Um, and if you're awesome. in that sort of clique, you're in that kind of popular crowd, but then you find yourself just on the outskirts of it, you become the one that they pick on. And mm. for me, um, I'm Jewish, but in fairness, I'm really more Jew-ish. Than anything else, and and uh, I'm not practicing. I'm not devout. I'm not even religious, but I was. But I am Jewish. I was. I was born Jewish, and you know, Manhattan Beach is a very just kind of one-dimensional white community. Um, not a lot of diversity, and and that one little thing kind of became the thing for kids to pick on. And I'm not trying to make more of it than it was. I'm not like I'm not crying, you know, crazy anti-Semitism or anything like that. But it was. It was a 
it was a a sticking point. It was a, a point that kids just used to kind of just poke and prod. And um, it was a pretty miserable time in my life. Uh, so I went to my parents and said, you know, this just isn't for me. And I, I need to make a change. So I, in my junior year, worked out a deal between my parents and school where I would go to high school from 8 to noon and college from noon to 4. Dual enrollment. I did that. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted out. Um, and I got to a point where I was a few credits away, but I would have to come back for my senior year and I was done. So I took my GED. I've never graduated high school. Um, and during that time, found the rave scene. And this is, I mean, keep in mind, it's mid-90s, guys. Like, rave scene was still, like, super underground, doing parties at illegal warehouses, shit like that. And might have been it was one. the most inviting community. There was such a sense of, like, acceptance and culture and community. It was just the, in, the antithesis of what high school was, which is catty and bitchy and clicky, like, the total opposite of that. So for me, it was, it was what I needed at that point in my life. And I ran to it, like, you know, I, I ran to it like a bullet out of gun. Um, so, yeah, I, I did that for a couple of years and then got sort of interested in like the business and the mechanics behind it. Sort of thinking like these other kids are out there throwing parties. We were kids. We were, teenage, we were teenagers. So started doing some parties. First party I threw um, was at a place called Lazaro's Ballroom. It was an abandoned bowling alley in downtown LA. Oh, that's a perfect and- rave location, man. Oh, yeah. oh, totally. And like my friends came over before the party. They got my parents all dressed up. They put my mom in an alien t-shirt that said, I believe. They put my dad in this lime green shirt that says, everybody rips. And my dad was working the door, taking tickets. That's amazing. Like, That's amazing. The so family cool. operation. It was hysterical. Um, but I think the posted capacity was like 900 people. And we must have had 2,000 people in there. So fire marshal got called, shut down the party. I remember we all get pushed out on the street at like 2 o'clock in the morning. There's helicopters circling, cops in riot gear, fire trucks, ambulances, like the whole nine. I walk out, my parents are like, what the fuck did you do? Oh, my God. That's amazing. You're famous immediately in the scene. Like, I can, as you're saying this, I can hear everybody talking about you. I can see your street cred or rave cred just raising. You're like, helicopter, boom, 2,000 over 900, boom, like... All you have to say is that you had unlimited glow sticks and you'd be fucking just the, the best raver ever. <laughs> no, the like the super G moment that actually like raised that profile was I had to get on the mic at like 32 o'clock in the morning to announce that like at like peak hours, everybody's going off. We got our headliner on that like, sorry, y'all got to go. And so I did. I got on the mic. Everybody started booing. And in a moment of sheer panic, I went, uh, but check the voicemails in 30 minutes. We'll have directions to a brand new location. I didn't have a fucking location set up. But like, and we, again, this is like, there's no cell phones back then. This is 1996, right? You had to like, you had a go to a telephone booth and like, question shit. Not even no, none of that. Like, you had to go to like a, oh, yeah. like a map site and like give like an egg and they'd give you the directions and like stuff like that. Um, and we did, we scrambled, we found another venue. We woke up a venue owner. We drove clear across town, set back up by like four, four thirty in the morning. We were raging again. And, and that definitely, I don't know, that definitely started to build a story, I guess. Um, absolutely. So I, from there started doing bigger parties. I started working with a guy named Pasquale Rotella, who a lot of people know today. He owns a company called Insomniac that does EDC, Electric Daisy wow. Carnival. These are the biggest events on planet earth. Um, back then, you know, Pasquale and I were just running this very small little company and 
Uh, I was working alongside him. Uh, you know, we were doing parties, 10, 12, 20,000 people. I mean, you know, huge at the time, but nothing compared to what it is today and the $6 billion a year industry that, uh, that EDM has turned into. Um, so again, just kind of jumping all over the place here, but trying to condense the story. Uh, we did a big event on New Year's Eve called Together as One. Um, it attracted the attention of a record label that uh, put out a commemorative CD in tribute to the event. Um, I forged a relationship with that label. And shortly thereafter, they approached me and asked me, they offered me a job. They asked me a, a, a gig as the A&R guy, which at the time, I didn't even know what it meant. And for those of you listening that don't, A&R stands for Artist and Repertoire. So you're the guy that's responsible for signing all the artists. Um, that's like the face of the agency almost. You have a lot a lot riding on you to stand oh, yeah. there in front of those people. You've got to fit the, the mold. You've got to look the part. You've got to walk the walk, talk the talk. They had a lot of faith in you oh, to yeah. put, that, put you in that position, especially right out the gate. Yeah, no, you're the guy. A&R guy is the most coveted job at a record label. Like, you're the guy. You're the one that goes and signs the artist, hangs with the artist, nurtures that relationship. You become the liaison between the record label and the artist. Um, I was 19, maybe 20, I think, when I got that gig. Wow. Um, so this was for a company called Moonshine, which at the time was the biggest independent electronic music label in the country. But again put this in perspective, not a lot of competition back then. Like it just, it just hadn't, it hadn't hit yet. There weren't the Calvin Harris's the world. Like it just hadn't connected yet on a mainstream level. So that all happened. Some of the most fun years of my life. Um, until about 2002, 2003, which for those of you that remember that, those of you that weren't even born then, which I realize is probably some of your viewers. Um, you know, 2002, 2003 was the dawn of Napster. Mm. which became the start of file sharing, CD burning, um, illegal downloading. You know, the, the record industry just imploded, like seemingly overnight. Yeah. I was Damn. managing yeah. record stores at the time. Oh, shit. Okay, so you know firsthand. Like, that yeah. just... It, yeah. it, right, mm -hmm. it seemed to happen almost overnight. Yeah, from 98 to... All that shit shut down in 02, I think. I was managing two large stores in Vegas probably went to some of your raves. My roommate was uh, EDM DJ from 97. He's still, my, he's still my best friend, but he would yeah. go do rave. His name's Adrian Pruitt. Uh, he went by Amp back then. He did a lot of jungle and drum and bass stuff. He's with okay. this crew called 119. Um, okay. But they, they, you know, we went to Utopia every weekend here in Vegas and yeah. uh, babies at the Hard Rock. And we were out in the middle of the desert at a bunch of raves and went to LA for a bunch. It was I just tagged along with him, but and so I was never super into it, but I went to tons of them. I guarantee you I somehow was at one of those parties. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. It started in 97. Yeah, fun days. Started. Yeah, it those was cool. really fun days. But it got really scary when all that shit happened in 02, 03, and I mean, record labels were laying off about a thousand. Um, and I got swept up in that. So parted ways with the record label I was with. Um, I just signed Mixmaster Mike from the Beastie Boys. Holy shit. And, Name drop. Yeah, that was amazing. Right? He loves I, the Beastie Boys. I have Boys. the license to yeah. ill plane art on the wall here in the studio. I'm looking at it right now. That's uh, uh, that's my favorite album. That I have that same album. In fact, I might run down and get it in my office downstairs signed by all of them. Oh my God, dude. That's like one of my most prized possessions. I had I got that signed by all of them. And it was given to me by an uncle and I had to hide the shit out of it because of the stuff that it said on it from my stepmom. And I played that thing so much. I know every word to Paul Revere, girls, every single song yeah. on that thing. I burnt the hell out of it. 
And the reason why I loved them is they were like nobody else. Their sound was always oh, yeah. different, always unique. The instruments they used were fucking insane because everything was an instrument. It didn't matter what the hell it was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's I, I, that was one, that's one of my most prized possessions. And I've had like, I, I met Rick Rubin a handful of years ago and, and like literally just kind of bowed down to him. And I was at a Grammy party last week. I'm not trying to name drop. I, I was at a Grammy party last week and Russell Simmons was there. And I, I had to stop myself and going up and be like, dude, dude, thank you, thank you for, ev- for everything you've contributed to this world. You know, we don't say that enough. Yeah. We don't say that enough, yeah, especially you- to the pioneers. The pioneers are the ones that are creating from the heart because it's something new. And we have to thank those people and allow them to, you know, age gracefully. I don't think we give respect to the pioneers enough. Now we wait till they die and then everybody claims to have loved them and, you know, plays their shit nonstop for six months and then moves on. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. TikTok is where artists go to die now when they get put on there and uh, they're like 45 to to 65, not in their prime anymore. That place eats them alive. I, my wife and I recently, she shared a video with me and she loves, and I hate to say this because I'll probably get some hate mail or something, but there was a video on of P. Diddy walking down like a catwalk and he was being compared to Luther Vandross. <laughs> that's, that's rough. <laughs> it, it, it was horrifying kind of and up. funny at the same yeah. time. Yeah. Um, so let me see here. So yeah, so I, I signed Mike. Mike got asked to go out on tour with Guns N' Roses in the most unlikely of pairings. I remember at the time I was like, fuck is that's perfect. Guns N' Roses want with Mike. Like, um, but then you only have to, you know, you only have to be out with guns for a couple of shows to realize that Axel is notoriously always an hour, maybe two hours late. And it can't exactly ask the opening act to just play their set again. Right. But you can ask a DJ to just play another record, play another record another record so every night it was just like hey guys can you just you know can you do this can you just stretch it out a little bit further <laughs> you want me to get more time in front of giant crowds doing what i love yeah i think i can yeah, oblige great. you with that <laughs> yeah plus like they, have, they were literally like holding off crowds rioting every night it was just so late so the more we play the longer we keep crowded or get you know engaged entertained um so from there i linked up with Ozzy Osbourne, and from there I linked up with Marilyn Manson and just, you know, toured with a bunch of those guys, but kind of realized that, like, after about a year and a half, like, this is not the life I want to live for the next 20, 30, 40 years. I don't want to be a guy that lives out on the road 10 months out of the year. Like, it was just, it was fun. I mean, again, I was like 23 out there having the time of my life, but not what I wanted to do with my life. I had bigger goals and ambitions for myself. So I got out of that, came home. I'm born and raised in LA. I'm actually fifth generation from LA. And I'd always kind of believe that like, if you're going to live and work in LA, just one of two industries you work in, either entertainment or real estate, right? It's the two driving forces that make LA what it is, right? It's like New York. You want to be in like fashion or finance or like there's a couple different, like, sense. you know, key driving forces. Mm-hmm. I say it makes sense. Uh, my dad always said that you should be a garbage man, a police officer or a doctor. They're always required. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dude. I mean, look, that just comes down to relevancy, which is a big thing that I talk about a lot in what I do. Um, so, yeah, I got, I thought, okay, I'll become a real estate agent. Great. Um, went to a family friend. Where do I go? What do I do? How do I get started? He's like, that's eh, pretty simple. You take this test, go here, do that. But in the meantime, it's going to take you a few months. I got a friend that owns a mortgage company down the street. You should go intern there. It'll be a great kind of baseline of knowledge for you to have as an agent. All right. So, 
I go to this place, this tiny little mom and pop down in, in, in the South Bay in Hermosa Beach. And it's like, you know, green carpet on the floor, tiny little like cubicle with a wooden desk and, and you know, ugh, desktop computer. Do you check your soul at the door? Do you have to like hang it on a rack? And <laughs> just- you go from chilling with Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah. Yeah. The last gig I had on tour with Ozzy and Corn and Manson, Disturbed and all these guys. <laughs> and I sit down at this desk and I swear to God, I thought I had died. I just thought my life was over. I was like, okay, well, it. it's rough. I had a really good run to like, to like 22, 23. And like, I guess I'm just surrendering to like the responsibilities and the bills of life. Um, and that sucked. That was a really hard pill to swallow. But everybody's um, got their Ozzy Osbourne moment before they turned into something different. Everybody has those yeah. days that they're like, oh, this was the time. You know, this is when I was doing the coolest shit. We always reminisce about that kind of stuff. But in all actuality, it already is, it's always now. And when it's always now, that means it's part of you no matter what. And you just keep enjoying the experience. Keep fucking spinning. But you used what it looks like to me outside looking in. You used the skills that you gained working with people and high profile types of people and how to navigate those environments and just that's a natural step. It's got to it's got to feel so good once you finally get up and running. Yeah, for sure. I think it's just, you know, your ability to just be able to communicate with people, just to be able to, you know, it's what I call casual confidence, right? Just to be able to like converse in a way that is confident but not arrogant, right? There's sort of a casualness to what you do and what the way you say it that sh- that demonstrates that, you know, that you know what you're talking about that you can walk and chew gum at the same time, but does it in a casual way. Like so much about real estate, people get really structured and they get very scripted. And like, you know, these scripts are meant to kind of just give you a roadmap, meant to kind of give you some touch points along the way, but it's a conversation, right? Nobody wants to be sold to. Nobody, right? You walk into a car dealership. Do you want some guy coming up to you the second you walk, you step foot in the door, breathing down your neck? Nothing worse. No, no, nobody wants to be sold to, but people want, you know, People want value. So if you can find a way to deliver value in a way that is conversational, in a way that isn't threatening, right? In a way that like, hey, I'm just here to provide value and I know that my income and what I achieve in life will be commensurate with that, right? I just trust in that. It's almost giving with the expectation of nothing in return because you just know that if I can find ways to continue to add more value, it'll come back tenfold. So... Giving without the expectation of a return. That's clearly the path to happiness. Because when you give, 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 you receive, 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 so you can give more. That's something yeah. that you, I've recognized throughout my time on The Rock is that when you see people that are habitually giving to others in one way, shape, or form, whether it be time, money, or, you know, some kind of advice, whatever it is, if they're giving it from the heart and they're always doing it, they have a steady stream of income and other ways that provide to them because they're a conduit. Life favors those that give. It gives more to those people so they can keep handing it back. Not because they're trying to fill their own void, because when you try to do that, it doesn't go anywhere else. But when you're giving like that, you're going to receive like that. 
Yeah. No, one of my best friends, a guy named Santiago Arana, was the one that really taught me the lesson about, you know, you're either operating from a place of abundance or a place of scarcity, right? Those are your sort of your two options. I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, room in the middle there, but if you want to kind of break it out into two paths, a place of abundance or a place of scarcity. So, right. So I'll just get back to this, this story real quick to the timeline. So I, I, I started doing mortgages. I don't love it, but you know, I picked it up quickly. I adapted things fairly quickly. And before I know it, you know, at that time in my life, I'm making more money than I had ever had before. And it ain't broke, don't fix it. So, you know, this is 2003, four, five, six, seven. And now, you know, I, I've jumped off one sinking ship, which is the record industry onto what I thought was a lifeboat turned out to be the Titanic that then steamrolled right into the mortgage crisis. And that those were some scary, dark times. To be a mortgage broker during the mortgage crisis was like having a front row seat for the end of the world. It was just like, I, 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 we didn't, in that moment, none of us really knew what was happening. And there's two amazing movies out there that everyone, everyone should watch. Um, one is called The Big Short, which a lot of you have probably already seen. Um, you know, a lot of you know big big A A list actors. Um, great movie in its own right. The other movie, lesser known, is called Too Big to Fail, and that was an HBO movie. But I'm sure you can easily find it online. Phenomenal. I've watched both of those movies. No shit, no exaggeration. I've probably watched them thirty times because every time they come on, I'm mesmerized by what actually was happening in those moments. You don't understand how close we were to the brink of total financial collapse. I'm talking about no money in the ATM machines, no, you know, no milk on the on the shelf at the grocery store, like total financial collapse. We were right there. And it's fascinating. And it also provides, you know, one of the most valuable tools that I think we all use to kind of navigate through our lives, which is perspective, right? Having lived through that and seeing what's happening today, the recession we're in today doesn't look scary at all. It, it's it's just a long overdue correction to a market that is cyclical by nature. This is what markets do, right? 2008, which is what people, people oftentimes have short memories. So when they think of a, a correction or a recession, they go back to the last one. And the last one was the second greatest economic disaster we've seen, second only to the Great Depression, right? So people automatically go back there and then it creates a lot of fear and anxiety in people. And it requires a lot of education on the part mm. of thought leaders in the space like myself to explain to people that that's not, these are not the same circumstances. It's not, in fact, not anywhere even near the same circumstances, but that requires education to help kind of quell those fears. Those have to be lessons. There have to be things that you look at in retrospect and hold them now as cautionary tales, but you can't yeah. let them hold your emotions because emotions make fucked up decisions. And if you think yeah. that yeah, if you think you're going to make a really good decision while you're under some kind of emotion, fear of some kind of, you know, loss of everything you have, you're fucking it up right out the gate. Yeah, 100%. So yeah, that was a dark, scary time. And it wasn't one that was, you know, it wasn't three months. It was like three years. Mm. And so, you know, flash forward now, it's like 2011, um, which is the same time that I met my now wife. Uh, when we met, my house was in pre-foreclosure. Uh, my bank accounts were being levied by the IRS. Hers too, funny enough. And it was just dark. It was a really hard time to pull yourself out of. And in the midst of that, I had sort of reached that, that pivotal moment that I know so many people have where it's just fucking miserable. Like, that's it. Not another minute, not another moment, mm -hmm. not another second. I'm done. 
I'm done with this. I don't care what that means and what I'm going to have to sacrifice further, but I'm not doing this anymore. Because the mortgage business had just become miserable. Like I just had to suit up every day, put on the battle armor and find new and creative ways of telling people no. How fucking miserable is that? Like oh, all day like long, you just no. You know, the real estate market, you're just killing people. Yeah, dreams. it's awful. No, I couldn't handle that. Right. Help facilitate the dreams. And all I was doing, because our hands were so tight, we were so handcuffed, that it was like, no, 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 sorry, wait, yet, yeah, no. Like, you just couldn't do anything. So I finally made the decision to move over to the other side of the aisle and start selling. Um, but I didn't have any business to, I didn't, have, I didn't have any base because all of my business as a mortgage broker had been, refer, had been referred by realtors. So I wasn't going to switch over and start then taking their clients, right? So I just had to start from scratch. So I starved for a year. I mean, literally, I didn't sell a house for a year. And then slowly, you know, it's just building blocks. You know, a little bit time out, you know. <sighs> Real estate is a lot like, not all that different than like if you're an actor. You go on a lot of auditions, mm. you don't win every part, right? You face a lot of rejection. Um, so, you know, I, I spent a lot of time working on my mindset because this business will chew you up and spit you out if you let it. And you really have to focus on your mindset and really kind of have to like build out a really tough exterior to be able to face those rejections, learn from them, and then, you know, find it in you to get up the next day and do it all over again. What kept you in the game? You know, you did the, the mortgage thing was fucked for years and then you jumped over and didn't sell a house for a year. Like, what, where did you get the confidence to know, you know, like it's going to happen and not just say screw the houses and mortgages and, and just jump ship to something else? What pushed you through that year knowing that you're going to figure it out and it was going to work? I think there's a variety of things. Like, you know, like anything, it's rarely ever any one thing. Um, for me, it was just sort of a mindset of like, I burned my ships, right? For those of you guys that don't know that expression, right? How do you take the island? burn your ships. Don't leave yourself any other way out. And I didn't. I, I didn't. I, I just didn't leave myself out. I didn't have anything to fall back on. I didn't have a college degree. I didn't have a high school diploma. I didn't have anything to fall back on. I just knew that like, this is what I have to do. And eventually, the pot's going to start to boil. And once it does, it's going to spill over. And you know, the other thing that I did was I purposely put myself in situations where I surrounded myself with the best um, mm. or by the best. Um, because I just believe that you know, you are the sum total of the people you surround yourself with. Mm. And everything you do in life, whether you know it or not, subconsciously, you're either playing up or you're playing down, mm. right? If you hang around with a bunch of jackasses, then like you're probably just going to like bring yourself down to their level. If you hang out with a bunch of people that are killing it and crushing it in life and their careers and whatnot, you're going to step up your game. Right? I'll use a sports analogy. Like, you know, if you're a tennis player and you go out with your buddy on the weekend, just mop the floor with them every time, you're never going to get any better. But if you go out in the court with Venus Williams, she's going to kick your ass. And at a certain point, just out of necessity, out of pure survival, you're going to you're going to harden, you're going to get better. You're going to improve your skills. So iron sharpens iron. There it is. I was waiting for you, Gary. You love that. I was what iron say, sharpens Gary? iron. Iron iron sharpens iron. You know, in fighting. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. If you're the toughest guy in the gym, and you're just fucking mollywopping everybody every day. You're not going to get better. You go and you you're, you're the to, you know a new gym where you're the worst guy. Your skills will you know triple in the time. You know, yeah, tenth of the time. You know, beat the shit out of everybody in your gym. You're not getting better. You know, when you totally. get in there and start getting your ass kicked again, you know that's when you level up. Ego needs totally. That. Ego needs that. You yeah, can become a different yeah, human absolutely. if you're if you're in a you know a small pond. 
and you're the biggest fish, you tend to believe that you're the biggest fish everywhere until you relocate and you find out that um, you're only that fish in that grouping. That's it. So I, I made a conscious effort to surround myself with, you know, with the best so that I'm constantly being forced to try to level up. Um, and that, I think, has been a big part of my success. And then another huge part of it was just coming to the realization, at least in my industry, and I, again, it's different for everyone in every industry, but I think that this is still sort of a universal law that applies to virtually every facet of life, is for me, this is not a one-man job. It's just not. I came to that place where I realized I can't be the best salesperson and the best marketer and the best prospector and the best operator. I can't, mm. right? And again, I think we'll apply that to so many different other facets of life that don't go it alone. I, you just, you know, there's so much more you can do together. There's so much strength in numbers. There's so much more of a, a big, you know, believer in the laws and, and, and principles of, of compounding and inertia and momentum and just mm. building upon that. Um, so, you know, my wife and I decided to start working together in like 2014, which we had always sworn never to do. Like we avoided it like the plague. We were never <laughs> even that husband, wife, realtor duo. Like that shit just drove us crazy. Oh yeah, the the two faces on the uh, bus uh, bench, dude. We, we so anything <laughs> like that, uh, and 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 we're not. Fortunately, we we came up with a very not initially. Initially, it was yeah. Initially, it was terrible. We we decided to start working together at the same time we were planning our wedding, which was the <laughs> worst decision we could ever make. Just the dumbest. <laughs> like, one of those things you look back on, like, your life thinking, like, yeah, I feel like I was pretty smart back then. And you look at, like, some of the decisions made. I was like, no, I was a fucking idiot. Uh, no, I would argue you ate your vegetables. Why eat your, your vegetables twice? Why have two separate dinners with the shitty vegetable when you can just fucking eat them all on Sunday and then not have to go fucking yeah. through it? yeah. It was it was brutal. We couldn't agree on anything. We literally couldn't agree on like what, like where, which direction the desk should face. I mean, it was just it was awful. But then we <laughs> we just worked it out because we just started to like we we were able to come to understanding like a clear delegation of responsibilities. There it is, right? That like okay, the only way we're going to be able to achieve all the things we want to do, right? We have all these big goals and aspirations. We can't do that unless we divide and conquer. Right. So you stay in your lane. I'm going to stay in mine. I'm going to trust you to do what you need to do the way it needs to be done and vice versa. Without that clear division of responsibilities, there's no way we could do the things that we've done or accomplish the things that we have. And that's the thing that I always try to like talk to. And we, we have an opportunity to mentor a lot of younger agents. Mm -hmm. They're like, you know, early mid twenties that work for us. And I always tell them there is no greater decision you will make in this life than that of the partner you choose, whether it's in business or specifically in your personal realm. The partner you choose, the person you're going to say, I'm going to wake up every day to tackle this life with, to raise kids mm -hmm. with, to achieve goals and ambitions with, to build your life with that partner. There's no, there's just no greater decision you'll ever make. You couldn't say anything more true. I credit my wife to every success that I've ever had because without her beside me, it would never have happened. Each and every time she has been the left puzzle piece or the right puzzle piece to my position. And I think that you have to find that because she's not trying to be my puzzle piece. She's not trying mm -hmm. to define my edges or anything like that. She's staying her own and she has to be her own in order to work with or together. Because once you start trying to force those pieces, shit hits the fan. You start bending them and yeah. your puzzles fuck. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it. You got to let people be who they are, but find ways to, you know, in an ideal world, be the yin to their yang. 
right? Like you have to find out ways to like fill in the gaps in their deficiencies because we all fucking have them. We all have our own deficiencies and idiosyncrasies and so forth. So um, yeah, I've been really, really fortunate in life where, you know, found an amazing partner in my wife, found amazing business partners, not once, but twice. Uh, I, I touched on this earlier, but I, I merged with another big agent about two years ago, found a partnership where I felt like I won the partnership lottery. Like the only thing we ever argued over was like, mm, that's not fair enough to you. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's not fair enough to you. Like that's the, and you know, it's the that. right partnership. That's a good problem. Um, and then, and then did it again with this most recent merger. And then and now there's four principles and we just have such respect and not just admiration, but adoration for one another. Um, and, you know, I heard this great line the other day that, um, let's see if I can get this right, that, uh, you know, it's one thing to disagree, it's another thing to argue, right? A disagreement is something to convince. An argument is something to win. And I don't want to win anything that my partners lose. And that's how we approach things, is like, hey, disagreements are constructive. The best ideas come out of fierce collaboration and oftentimes, you know, a little bit of disagreement that comes with that. But, you know, we don't fight, we don't argue, because that's, like I said, there's winners and losers in that. And then this doesn't need to be a game of winners and losers. Everybody can win. I love that point. And I think that that's probably a good place to, to bring this to a conclusion, because I think that uh, we should all try to be winners and take your advice and let people around you excel and let them join the team and be a greater good. Gary's always great about uh, talking about things like I'm your friend. And I've seen in the uh, time that we've been friends and the way that, you know, that he's worked with people that his relationships are so long standing and they're cyclical and work. How many times, Gary, have you reached back into your pocket of friends and colleagues and recycled them into new creative endeavors? I've met people at an airport bar I've been friends with 19 years. You know, it's like Amazing. we all we all rise together. Like if your friends are your competition and shit, then who's the ops? You know, who's the, the opposition? Like, you know, I want everyone on my team should win or we're all going to lose. Like we all play different parts mm -hmm. and, you know, and it's I totally agree about arguing, you know, versus like debating or, you know, disagreeing. Like I'm not trying to win this argument, you know, and. And, you know, because then it's an emotional thing and I'm actually hurting our business because I might not be like I'm pushing for a decision to be made based on emotions that might not be right for our company. I just want to win this one. And, you know, because he won the last like and we're all very competitive, you know, like mm -hmm. I grew up fighting. I'm around fighters. You know, I, I do a lot of different reality shows, but the main stuff I do is for the UFC. So we're all very competitive, but like we're competitive together as a team against everybody else, not you know, against each other, which it, it's worked out, you know, really good. I, I got in this business the same time you got in yours, 2003, when the record music industry crashed, exact same thing. I had to make a decision to, to zig or zag, and I got into television in, in 2003, and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's it was rough at the beginning, too. You know, you're new, you don't have any connections, you don't know what the fuck you're yeah. doing, and you got to just starve your way through it, um, but you got to want it, and know that you could carve your own path. You're not going to just go back to the desk and punch the clock. And so, you know, I got a lot of respect for what you did because there's a lot of stops there. Like the mortgage thing, you know, a lot, 99% of people fuck that. Then you get into real estate, can't sell anything for a whole year. Like 
most people tap out at the get that point. And they're like, I'm going to go work at H&R Block or I'm going to, you know, become an accountant or something safe. So, you know, someone has got the confidence that they'll figure it out. And I always use the burn the boats um, saying too, you know, it's like, there's, I, I never have a fallback plan. I never give myself like, oh, if this doesn't work out, then I could go do this. Mm-hmm. You know, my, at the time, my fallback plan was to go back to Cleveland and sell crack like all my friends were and, you know, be on the corner. And that was not an option. So I was Same. going to move, you know, forward. So uh, it's real inspirational, like what you've done and in a market like Beverly Hills and LA, like everyone in the world obviously wants to be selling houses there, not Omaha, you know? So I think to like yeah. drive and, you know. Oh, with uh, that, you know, look, I, I super blessed and fortunate to live and work and get to sell real estate in one of the most affluent cities in the whole world. Right. But with that, like I take a really serious sense of responsibility. Right. I, I, I come up with this analogy uh, for anyone that golfs, right? There's different tee boxes, right? There's mm-hmm. the pro tees, there's the men's tee, there's the women's tee. And this is where you tee off from to try to get to the green and get on, get in the hole. Mm-hmm. We sell real estate in one of the most affluent markets in the world. We're teeing off from just off the green. We're so much closer to the cup. We're so much closer to the hole than someone that's coming from. Omaha, Nebraska, or from a fucking hut in Uganda. You know, like there was so much. You're describing the racial differences with how people start their lives to success in this country. The race starts a a half a mile behind other ones every single time. That's a brilliant thing to point out. A lot of people like to look back on what they've done and they don't realize that they may have had some advantages that others did. Also, it's competitive as shit, too. 100%. 100%. I, I always say, like, we have a responsibility to be successful. It would be wasteful and disrespectful to all the mm. other people that have to come so much further than we do to not be successful. Like, that's, I have a very firm belief about that, that it would literally be wasteful and insulting to those that have, mm. have climbed such a higher mountain. So, um, yeah, look, I think for a lot of people, just, you know, again, stand on the shoulders of giants until you can become one yourself. Find someone that you look up to, that can mentor you, that you can model your business after. And then it's a sort of fine line of like, know your strengths and your weaknesses. Find something that you know that you can do. Don't have limiting beliefs about what is possible. But I see a lot of people get into real estate because I don't know why. Um, maybe they see the stuff on television, they see the big sexy houses, and they see the, you know, the, the flashy sort of commission checks. But like, these aren't, they don't really have the skill sets to do that job, right? Find what you can be good at and then surround yourself with people that can make you better at it. 87% of real estate agents fall out in, the first, in their first two years. Most aren't cut for it. So, you know, just be real with yourself about what you're good at, what your strengths are, what your skill sets are, and then find a community that can help harness that and elevate that. Yeah, I believe in Vegas when people are done with the club scene or dancing or whatever, they all become real estate agents. Like, I don't know what to do now. I'm not bartending. I'm not the door guy. I'm not a go-go oh, dancer. No. Isn't that the newly divorced person's job too? I think that's one of the uh, stereotypes that they throw out there. because it's, it's too low of a bar for entry. And I don't take me down that path because we'd be here for another hour. But like, that's the problem is there's too low of a bar for entry, which is why most people say like, oh, well, I don't have the time, the ability, the money to go back to college or go get a degree, which again, I don't have one myself. So I'm not a huge of that. I think that if there's certain things you want to do, a doctor, a lawyer, um, 
you know, then yes, obviously you need to have that certificate, but otherwise there's a lot you can achieve in life without it. Yep. But that real estate license is so easily attainable that most people just go to that. But you really have to question like, am I suited to this? Am I, do my skill sets, my personality, am I front facing? Am I outgoing? Am I sociable? Or am I more of an introvert? Like, do I possess the sort of inherent skill sets to be successful at this? You got to be a self starter. You got to get your ass out of bed every day oh, and go fuck, get yeah. it. You know, you can't yeah. just sleep till noon and lollygag around. I mean, if you're not out there grinding, you're not eating. Pick, That's pick it. breakfast you like. Whatever your job is, you better fucking make it egos because you're the one to get up every fucking morning and eat shitty breakfast. Like, just pick the <laughs> breakfast that's good. I prefer to get up and have egos for my job and start the day that way, not have to be all fucking curmudgeoned. I did that. I worked in the business world. I was a solution architect, consultant. Worked around the world, got on the plane, sitting next to Dave from his consulting agency, both flying to fucking Wichita for like three months in a row. You know, think, but everybody else looking in, they're like, oh, he's on planes, he's staying in hotels, he's got, you know, he gets these bonus checks and this kind of shit. I'm like, no, it's the most miserable life ever. Sitting on a plane yeah. in a suit is the worst thing you could ever have to do. I'd agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I, guys, by the way, I only I have a listing appointment for a, a yep. big property here uh, in Beverly Hills right after this, which is why I'm dressed. I usually am like, you know, jeans and a t-shirt, but I don't believe I'm a it. Dressed up I don't believe it, man. Jet, You're the so. Kindle yeah. of real estate. <laughs> I do. <laughs> God, I he's actually in his, like, he's actually in his pajamas. That's his suit pajamas. <laughs> yeah, that's what I sleep in. I love it. I love it. Yeah, yeah I haven't even gotten ready yet. This, I just woke up like this. <laughs> it's perfect. You got to play the part, though. You know, if I showed up at that listing like this, know your audience. Yeah, yeah. And I and in LA, there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of appointments I'll show up to in jeans and a t-shirt because I know that's who I'm meeting with today. It's it's a group of developers at the whole different ballgame. Yeah. Uh, no thanks. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, John, for coming on. Is there anything that you'd like to share on the way out, CTA? Let everybody know where to find you. Yeah, um, you can easiest place to find me, of course, is going to be on uh, on Instagram. It's just John Grauman, uh, J O N G R A U M A N. I'm sure you'll probably uh, put something up. Absolutely. Um, also, my group, bondcollective.re. Uh, um, that's on Instagram as well. And then, of course, you can find us on YouTube as well by just searching uh, Bond Collective RE. I genuinely appreciate it. You're a cool guy, and you're welcome back anytime. Thanks, man. I really appreciate you guys having me. I love what you're doing. And uh, again, thanks so much for the opportunity. Absolutely. Remember, everybody, be cool and keep learning. Mm -hmm.